invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Luke 9. Uh, For those of you that come to Sunday school, this passage will actually be semi-familiar as we covered it not too long ago, maybe about a month ago. We covered it. At that point, we recognized that our our, uh, sermons, my sermons and our teaching were merging. And so we kind of switched gears in Sunday school. But we still have uh, this week and next week left on Luke 9. And then we'll be digging into Luke 10 and speeding up a little bit. Title of the message this evening in verses 49 to 56, The Spirit of Christianity. This morning in our Ecclesiastes series, uh, just briefly we touched on uh, the importance for us to understand that we uh, need to be careful to care for the poor. Right? We had said that there's a, a tendency because of the entitled age in which we live, the victim mentality in which we live, uh, the, the philosophy changing in, in, uh, in the culture in which we live, there is a tendency perhaps to become resentful of the poor or to become resentful of those who are in need because there are so many today who are not in need who are gaming the system. And we said that we need to be careful of this because God has a deep love for and care for the weak, the innocent, the needy, and the poor. It is natural, but not biblical, to react against the needy with apathy. And what we need to understand as we considered those topics this morning just briefly, and as we kind of bridge into them this evening is just how very foreign hostility, anger, and judgment are to biblical Christianity. God has not called us to be angry vindicators of His holiness or arbiters, meters out, judges in order to mete out God's wrath. Our spirit is one that is to be different altogether. And whether that is looking toward the unbelieving world and the spirit with which we approach those who are wicked and evil and unkind and all of that, or whether it's the believing world and the spirit of those who are walking contrary to sound doctrine. We need to understand that the spirit of Christianity is one that reflects the spirit of our Lord Jesus Christ in His first advent, not in His second advent. And that's what we're going to learn about today. We pick up in our text this evening in John Chapter 9, verse 49, and the Bible says this. And John answered and said, Master, we saw one casting out devils in thy name, and we forbade him, because he followeth not with us. Recall where we find ourselves in the context. Recall where we left off last week. Jesus has just told his disciples, disciples that to receive a child in his name is to receive him. He gave the disciples a lesson on what it means to be great, that the greatest in the kingdom would be the servant of all. So much of our lives is spent in service to ourselves, is it not? Seeking our own way, our own thoughts, our own happiness, our own priorities, the things that we want. And as we have explored for a couple of weeks now, if we have the faith to receive it, if we have the faith to receive it, if we have the faith to hear, if we will hear, if we have the faith to receive it, 
we will find that everything we could truly want from life, all the true fullness of joy in this life, is achieved when we finally have the faith to yield our will to God's. When we finally have the faith to say, God, it's not what I think I want, but what I really do want is your will, and your will has been made clear to me. So even though it seems contrary to the, to the pull of my heart, to the tug of my desires, because it's, it's, it's what your word says I should want, I'm going to want it. And that's where blessing is found. And this is effectively impossible to understand until you've taken that step of faith and yielded. In other words, as we've talked about several times, faith must precede blessing. The blessing doesn't come until the faith comes first. I have to take God's word for it before the blessing will come. He's not going to give me the blessing and then I say, okay, now I believe it, God. You have to step out in faith and trust it before the blessings that come with it can be realized. And those that do step out in faith will find that in giving their lives, they've actually gained everything. That in yielding that which they could not understand why they had to yield it, and yielding that which they, their flesh didn't want to yield, they actually gained so much more. This week is very much a continuation of this, not just in context, but also in concept. Following Jesus' call for them, for his disciples to be servants, we find John speak up. And state that the disciples saw a man casting out devils in the name of Jesus. So John says, Lord, we found one casting out devils in thy name. And having seen this, John says, we forbade him. Because, and he gives his reason why, he followeth not with us. He was not one of us, so we told him to stop ministering in your name. Now, before we move on to Jesus' response to this, how is Jesus going to respond? Uh, obviously, John said this to Jesus, seeking some sort of approval, seeking some sort of validation of what he did. Why else would they have done it? Maybe just telling Jesus, Jesus, this is what's going on. Other people are preaching in your name. And before we understand how Jesus responds... I'd like to put a couple more pieces together from our context. Remember, Jesus had just taught them in verse 48, as we've said, that to receive a child in Jesus' name is to receive him. Now, we cross-referenced this last week to the account in Matthew 18, where Jesus first tells them, in his attempt to help them understand the spirit of servitude, He told them that those who humble themselves as a little child are the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. He then called them to receive this child in his name, further warning, and this is where we're going to pick up, further warning that those who offend the little ones who believe in him, he says it were better that a millstone, which is a very heavy stone, would be hung around your neck and you'd be cast into the sea than to offend one of those little ones. And then he generalizes it. He broadens the context of offense in Matthew 18, verse 7. And he says, Woe unto the world because of offenses. For it must needs be that offenses come, but woe to that man by whom the offenses come. Woe unto the world, Jesus says. It it must be that offenses come. And we talked about this a couple of weeks ago in Ecclesiastes, right? Just two weeks ago. That offenses will come. That this world is full of wicked and evil people that will take advantage of the weak and the innocent and the poor and the needy. Woe unto the world because of offenses. Offenses must come. 
but woe unto those by whom they come. Woe unto the world for causing those who are predisposed to believe, who want to believe, woe unto those who place a stumbling block in the way of those who would come to Christ so that they don't come to Christ, causing them to become offended in Christ and so to forsake Him. Woe unto those who, for whatever reason, turn away those who are honestly and genuinely seeking the truth of God's Word. So Jesus will say, and we'll get there in Luke, but Jesus will say in Luke 11, verse 52, Woe unto you lawyers, for ye have taken away the key of knowledge. Ye entered uh, not in yourselves, and them that were entering in ye hindered. So he's talking to the, the leaders in Jerusalem. And he's saying, you had the key to the knowledge through the word of God. And you kept that key to yourself. You didn't give it to the people. You kept that key to yourself so that only you can unlock it. And then you refused to go in yourself, and then you hindered anybody else who wanted to go in. That word hindered there is the same word that we find in our passage in verse 49. And John said, Master, we saw one casting out devils in thy name, and we forbade him, hindered him. It's the same word there. We hindered him. We prevented him from doing this work. Men who will go out of their way to cause others to be hindered. Now, in this case, in Luke chapter 11, that's being hindered in understanding the truth. In John's case, it was simply hindered in preaching or in the ministry in the name of Jesus Christ. Jesus would speak a similar woe upon the scribes and Pharisees in Matthew 23, verse 15. He said, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye compass the sea and land to make one proselyte, one follower, and when he is made, you make him twofold more a child of hell than yourselves. He says, you have rejected the word of God and you go find others to follow you and in them following you, you confirm them in their rejection of the word of God so the next generation is more lost than even yours. And all of these concepts lead us to Jesus' response to John. John says, Master, we saw one who was not one of us preaching and casting out demons in your name, and we forbade him. And Jesus says this in verse 50. Jesus said unto him, Forbid him not, for he that is not against us is for us. Whoa. Don't hold him back. If he's not against us, he's for us. I'm sure John didn't expect that. Don't forbid this man from his good work. Sure, this man is not one of the commissioned 12. For all we know, he may not have even been one of the commissioned 70, or maybe he was. But John says, look, he's not one of us. Perhaps there were some right feelings of concern here over false teaching and false representation. Maybe one of the reasons why they want to, trying to discern motives here. Maybe they say, well, Jesus, one of the reasons why is because we fear like, He's not one of us. Maybe he's going to teach it wrong. And we want to make sure he teaches it right. But you know, the disciples sure didn't have a corner on the teaching it right market, did they? Were they, were they not the ones that last week we learned were unable to cast out the demon from the man's son? Were they not the ones who had feared on the Sea of Galilee, who, who could not, would not multiply the loaves and the fishes? Uh, who who did not have a solution to feeding the 5,000, they, they don't exactly have a corner on the market of faith and truth, do they? 
Or perhaps there was some degree of jealousy here. After all, they had failed to cast out a demon and now this man is doing it. Maybe they felt as though only those who were commissioned by Jesus should be allowed. We cannot know for sure what their motive was in forbidding this man. And we dare not attribute motive where we don't exactly know it. But I can say this about their actions. They kind of hit pretty close to home with me. How often am I tempted to reject a person's devotion to Christ because they aren't like me? How often am I distracted by a person's effectiveness in ministry because they don't walk in my circles or do things quite as I do? And so I'm tempted to reject even their success because I don't like the way they do things, because it's not comfortable, because it's not quite the way I do things. That's a temptation all the time. He's not one of us, therefore let's forbid him. And to this attitude, Jesus tells John. And notice, if you look in your Bibles in verse 29, John says, Master, we saw one casting out devils in thy name, and we forbade him. Plural. All of us, right? However many there were. But who does Jesus reply to? Him. Not them. Him. Jesus speaks directly to John. And he says to John, perhaps John being the spokesperson, perhaps maybe because John was actually the one that did it, and then John kind of attributed motive to the whole group to make himself feel better. One way or another, Jesus tells John, don't forbid him. If he's not against us, Jesus says he's for us. If he is doing right, if he's preaching in my name, if he's being a proper testimony of the gospel... If he is accurately reflecting my person and my work, then why should he be forbidden from the work? Do note that Jesus is speaking of the man that is for him. We're not talking about the man who goes around claiming Jesus while working for himself. This man was not a false teacher. This man was not a wolf in sheep's clothing. This man was not one of those. And we'll make that distinction quite clearly as we continue through the message. We need to be careful here that we're not saying, okay, so anyone who claims the name of Jesus is okay, because he's, he, if he's not against us, he's for us. No, 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 no. That's not what we're saying here. But what we're saying is if a man bears the fruit of Christ's likeness, if he bears the fruit of a ministry that is true to the, the truths of God's word, if it is reflecting God's word, but he's not one of us, Whatever that means. He's not Baptist. He's not independent fundamental. He's not non-age segregated. Whatever it might be. That is not cause for us to reject him. That is not cause for us to forbid him. We're talking about a man who is going about doing right works in Jesus' name. With the only difference between him and the disciples being that he is not one of the disciples. And Jesus says, don't forbid the man who is not among us just because he is not among us. If he's not against us, then he is for us. And if he is for us, then why forbid him? We continue in our text, verse 51. And it came to pass, when the time was come that he should be received up, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. Now to this point, Jesus has spoken several times of his coming death, right? But it is here where we actually find our first record of Jesus' ministry directing itself toward his death. The Bible says that he steadfastly, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. His death would be there and he is going to go there. Though it was a place of danger, his ministry thus far had been primarily in Galilee. 
and it had been quite successful in many ways, he has to go to Jerusalem. Now, the account we've been studying over these past couple of weeks has made it abundantly clear, clear that even among those who are in Galilee, who followed him, who, who, who uh, were, were fans of his ministry, there were many who had accepted him as a good person and loved his miracles, but had not exactly accepted his identity as Christ, right? We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. It was coming time for him to be rejected of men, to die, to raise again, and to then to finally ascend into heaven. And as we think about this, Jesus is steadfastly setting his face to go to Jerusalem to die. Take note of the fact that we're still in Luke 9. If you flip to the end of Luke, you'll find that there are 24 chapters in Luke. So we are just over a third of the way through Luke and already we're coming toward the last days of his ministry. Probably within the last final several months of his ministry from Luke 10 through Luke 24. And this gives us a hint of that because now he is steadfastly setting his face to go to Jerusalem, which of course we know that he he attended at least three Passovers and this would be the one where he steadfastly sets his face unto death. Continuing in verse 52, the Bible says, and sent messengers, this is Jesus speaking before his face, and they went and entered into a village of the Samaritans to make ready for them. Now, this is interesting. This is really good. Take note of this. So Jesus is heading down to Jerusalem and he is going to go through Samaria. This is not the first time Jesus has done so, is it? Remember early in the book of John, when Jesus, just before he begins his Galilean ministry, he set his face to go up to Galilee, and the Bible says he must needs go through Samaria. And there in John chapter 4, Jesus had interaction with a Samaritan woman who was going out to the well. And he told her that he was Messiah, and she accepted that. And many believed when they heard his teaching in that particular city. So Jesus is going through Samaria again. And he's determined to do so and to give them another opportunity to hear, to believe, and to receive the gospel. So Jesus sends his messengers before them to go into the villages of the Samaritans and to make ready for him. We might presume that this is a similar event to what happened at the beginning of Luke 9, where Jesus commissioned his 12 to go two by two throughout Galilee and to preach the gospel, right? He said, go out and preach the gospel. And if they receive you, then stay there and preach. If they cast you out, then dust the feet, the, 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 shake the dust off your feet and go to the next place. So we might presume that it's a similar idea that they are going through the, the, the villages of Samaria and they're looking for which villages are willing to receive the gospel and to those villages, Jesus himself would come. Picking up in verse 53. And they did not receive him because his face was as though he would go to Jerusalem. The Samaritans would not receive him and take special notice to the reason. They would not accept his message or receive him as Messiah, not because of his message, not because of who he is, but because they knew that Jesus was only passing through on the way to Jerusalem and they hated the Jews. We've talked about that, right? We've talked about why the Samaritans hated the Jews. It goes back to an old conflict that really began in the days of Nehemiah and Ezra and continued through the intertestamental period where the Jews thought the Samaritans were half-breeds. Initially, the Samaritans wanted to be a part of what the Jews were. They wanted to worship in Jerusalem. 
When the Jews said, no, you may not worship in Jerusalem because you're not pure, you're a half-breed. They said, well, fine, we're doing it our own way. And then they took on the identity of the, of the Jews during the intertestamental period to gain the favor of those who liked the Jews. And so the Jews would eventually attack the Samaritans and destroy their false gods and their temple. And so there was this back and forth. So now in the New Testament, they hate each other deeply. And here, they hear the message of the gospel. And even if that message rung true to them, when they heard that Jesus was only passing through on his way to Jerusalem, their bigotry and their prejudice overrode their willingness to listen to the gospel. And they said, we refuse to listen to this man because of his identity, because of who he is, because he's a Jew, because he's on his way to Jerusalem. And I hope that you see the parallels between what we just read in verses 49 and 50 and what is happening here. The disciples rejected the ministry of a man who was teaching and preaching Jesus Christ for one reason and one reason only, because he wasn't one of them, right? That's what happened. Jesus, we were, we, we heard this man casting out demons in your name and we forbade him because he's not one of us. And now those same disciples go into the Samaritans and they begin preaching and teaching the gospel and they reject them because they're not one of them. Do you see the parallels? Can you see how these two are so similar? And if this thing isn't becoming super familiar to you yet, let's just take a moment to pause to think about how petty we humans really are. We reject people not on merit, not on principle, but on association. We form alliances not along lines of truth, but along lines of comfort or petty or boastful lines. We go to our people and we stay with our people just because they're our people. And it doesn't matter if our people are right or wrong or their people are right or wrong. Association itself makes us right rather than truth. We've seen this in politics pretty heavily in this past election, haven't we? And let's be clear, this is human nature. We are, by nature, people that like to congregate and associate. We're tribal, if you will. This is human nature. Now, not, take note, this is not Christ's nature, but this is human nature. We see this all the time in the world. The battles that we are waging every day are often waged along these lines of ideologies, of associations. And as long as it's our guy, it really doesn't matter if truth is preeminent because it's our people, it's our guy. We have to win. It's not about principle, it's about association. And this problem is so very human and touched the disciples very closely. But what perhaps is even more interesting about this is the response of the disciples when the Samaritans rejected their ministry. Verse 54. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, so here's James and John again. When they saw this, they said, Lord, wilt thou that we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Even as Elias did. Now remember in our King James Version of the Bible, the translators sought to translate as close to the original Greek as possible. And in the original Greek, there are certain Greek sounds that were not existent in the Hebrew alphabet. And so when the Greek 
uh, when, when the Greek writer sought to speak about Elijah, there was no sound for Elijah in the Greek alphabet. So they transliterated it to Elias in order for it to work in the Greek. And the King James translators, because they were so careful to make sure that they were reflecting the Greek properly, did not change it back to Elijah to change what the Greek would have said, but they kept it as an accurate reflection of the Greek underlying the text and kept it as Elias. And so now we have to put the, put the two pieces together, right? We have to study enough to know that Elias in the New Testament is Elijah in the Old Testament. And we put those pieces together. And what the disciples are referencing here is 2 Kings chapter 1. In this passage, Ahaziah, who is uh, the son of Ahab, Ahab being one of the most wicked kings in the history of Israel or Judah, Ahaziah was injured. He had fallen, and he was injured, and he was dying. He had fallen from a great height. He was lying in the palace of Samaria, and having been steeped in the wickedness of his father's false religion, and his mother, who was Jezebel, right? Uh, their false religious system. He sends his servants to inquire as to whether or not he would be saved. But instead of acquiring of the God of Israel, he says to his servants, go to Ekron, which was the Philistine city, and inquire of Beelzebub, who literally is Satan, and inquire of Satan about whether or not I'm going to die. And God is a little bit offended at this, as you might rightfully expect, right? God says, here I am, the God of Israel, and you're sending to the Philistines to inquire of Beelzebub to know whether or not you're going to live and die. And so God sends Elijah to give a message to the king, Ahaziah. And this is where we pick up in 2 Kings chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Elijah stops this delegation of servants on the way to their inquiry. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria, and say unto them, Is it not because there is not a God in Israel that ye go to inquire of Beelzebub, the God of Ekron? Now therefore thus saith the Lord, Thou shalt not come down from that bed on which thou art gone up, but shalt surely die. And Elijah departed. So Elijah jumps into the picture. He says, look, I'm going to save you a trip. Because you inquired of the devil rather than inquiring of God, you are now going to die. And you'll never get off that bed. Okay, bye. And then he leaves. You can go back to your master and you can tell him this. So they go back to Ahaziah and they say, we were on our way to Ekron when this man stopped us and he said these things to us. And he said to come back and to tell you this. And Ahaziah says, what did the man look like? And they said, well, he was this man dressed in fur and wearing a leathern girdle. And he was a a rough man, as we knew Elijah was. And he says, I know who that guy is. That's Elijah. And so he says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to send a delegation of soldiers to Elijah. And I'm going to go to him and, and question him. I want him to come see me. And this is where we pick up the account in verse 9 of 2 Kings 1. Then the king sent unto him a captain of 50 with his 50. And he went up to him. So, so 51 men, a captain and 50 men. And behold, he sat on the top of a hill and he spake unto him. 
Thou man of God, the king hath said, Come down. The king wants to talk to you. And Elijah answered and said to the captain of fifty, If I be a man of God, then let fire come down from heaven and consume thee and thy fifty. And there came down fire from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. So these men come to take Elijah in, right? We're bringing you in. You've got to answer to the king for your words. You man of God. And Elijah says, well, if I'm a man of God, then fire is going to fall from heaven and consume you. And indeed it does. And this happens more than once. This happens a couple of times. Then the final man falls down on his knees and says, please don't burn me. I just, I'm just here at the king's order. He just wants to see you. And Elijah actually goes with him. But don't miss the nuances here. We've already talked a little bit about the Samaritans from the days back when they were already half-breeds in the days of Nehemiah and Ezra. But if you trace them back farther, remember where the Samaritans came from. In 722 BC, the Assyrian Empire came into northern Israel and destroyed them and took the people of northern Israel captive and interbred with them and created this half-breed group of people called the Samaritans. Now, originally that wasn't supposed to happen. The, the people of Israel were never supposed to go back into the land. But if you recall, the Assyrians that moved into northern Israel after the Israelites were taken out were mercilessly destroyed by the lions. God sent lions into the land to kill them. And so in 2 Kings 17, verse 25, uh, the Bible says the Lord sent lions in to kill them. And so the, the people said, look, the, the beasts of this land are killing us left and right. The God of this land is obviously unhappy. Please send back your the, the priest of Israel to teach us how to appease the gods of this land. And so the people of Israel were brought back into the land and they interbred with these Assyrians and created this half-breed group of people that we know as the Samaritans. They had their temple at Mount Gerizim and because the Jews had rejected the Samaritans as half-breed, as we mentioned, these groups hated each other. But take note that even in the days of Israel's power, The wicked kings of the north hated the prophets of God. Ahaziah is a king in Israel, but he hates the prophet of God. He hates Elijah. Now take all of this information and and think about that as we get back to verse 54. They are interacting with the descendants of northern Israel here, right? The Samaritans. They're interacting in the same area where Elijah had been prophesying to Ahaziah. And so now here, these wicked and apostate Samaritans have rejected the prophets of God. They've rejected the word of God, just like Ahaziah some 750 years earlier. And so James and John speak up, and perhaps they think within themselves, see, people never change. All the way back to the days of Ahaziah, they rejected the word of the Lord, and now here they are, the Samaritans are still rejecting the word of the Lord. God, should we do the same thing Elijah did some 750 years ago to these Samaritans, to these northern Israelites? Little do they regard the fact that the spirit of us versus them, that compelled the Samaritans to reject the ministry of Jesus was the same spirit that in verses 49 and 50 was in them as they forbade the ministry of the man who wasn't among them. It's the same spirit, isn't it? 
The very same spirit where the Samaritan said he is not one of us, so we reject him, is the spirit that they had when they forbade the man who was preaching in Christ's name. And yet here they are among the Samaritans, and they blindly say, Lord, should we call down fire from heaven? Let's burn these guys up. And by the standard, guess who would burn with them? James and John. <laughs> right? I mean, not because they rejected the ministry of Jesus Christ, but because they had the same will unwillingness. The same them mentality. You can almost feel the kind of anger and bigotry in their voices as they sought to force these unbelieving heathen to pay the ultimate price for their rejection. And it's interesting that they did not come to Jesus after the commission to go two by two in Galilee. Remember where Jesus told them to shake the dust off their feet when they were rejected? It's interesting that we didn't read when they came back from that ministry. Hey, Jesus, this city and this city and this city rejected us. Let's call down some fire from heaven. We didn't read about that, did we? They never said that about their fellow Galileans. But the Samaritans reject them. Jesus, let's call down fire from heaven and consume them like Elijah did. Where their frustration over rejection met their tribalism, bigotry, and prejudice, their heart turned to indignation and a desire for swift and divine vengeance. But now is where we kind of dig into the point. Look at Jesus' response in verses 55 and 56. But he turned and rebuked them and said, Ye know not what manner of spirit ye are of. For the Son of Man is not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. Jesus rebukes his disciples. He doesn't say, yeah, go get them. Call down fire from heaven. He says, James, John, you do not understand the spirit of the words that you just said. But it's not my spirit. They don't understand the weight of what they're saying. They may have zeal, but it is not coupled with knowledge. The spirit of their words is not the spirit of Christ, but rather the spirit of pride and of vengeance. They want these Samaritans to pay for their rejection of the word of God, and they want the Samaritans to receive the absolute deepest, farthest, most dramatic consequences possible for their rejection. And Jesus says, look, that's not the spirit of my ministry. They were not thinking of these men and women as eternal spirits. They were thinking of them as natural enemies. They were not regarding the concept of these men and women and their best. They only saw the rejection. Jesus came not to destroy men's lives, but to save men's lives. Jesus said in John 3.17, For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Jesus' ministry was one of patience, of grace, of love, and of reconciliation. Now, this does not, of course, mean that he abandoned his holiness, his righteousness, and his purity. But rather, it was his cause to reflect the love of God toward men, to win them through this love, warning them of the wrath that is coming upon all who will reject him. And this love, this grace, this patience was not just for the Jews but for the Samaritans and unto the uttermost part of the world. And so the Bible says they went to another village. And this is where we end our exposition today. 
but we do need to apply. We're going to take our application in two directions here. First, I do want to warn us to beware of the spirit of tribalism and to stay loyal to the truth alone. We've spoken already of this human propensity to cluster. That's really, in many ways, what denominations and churches are. We have found in this church a group of people that are like-minded, and this is not a bad thing. We worship the Lord in a manner that is comfortable to us, in a manner that we believe is best and that we believe is right. We don't look at out at all of the churches around us and say, hey, look, you're doing it wrong because you don't do it our way. That's not this, the spirit of our ministry, but it is our tendency, and it's not a wrong tendency to say, hey, these are people that agree with the way in which we're doing things, and, and so we're going to congregate together to worship in, in this manner. Now, this can be overtly seen, as we've mentioned, in the problem of denominationalization of the church, right? There's no doubt that there are many valid reasons for separation and that the denominational mess that the Western world finds itself in right now is in part necessary to preserve the purity of the church. But I should wonder just how many denominations and churches have been formed along the lines of the very spirit that's it, that was exhibited by the disciples in this verse or in, these, in this passage. How many times have churches and denominations sprung up along the lines of things that Jesus Christ would actually rebuke us for and say, you know not what spirit you are of, or rebuke us for and say, if they're not against us, they're for us. According to several statistics, the number of denominations that exist under the umbrella of Christian in this world is somewhere near 30,000. It's a big number. And when we see that, We should understand two things. First off, there's a lot of false teachers. But second, we've got to understand that there's a lot of pettiness among us as believers. But this can also be seen within the churches and denominations themselves, as I've mentioned. When we as God's people are motivated to support or reject a person, ministry, or attitude upon the basis of something other than truth. So if your pastor goes rogue... But you love your pastor, so you support him at the expense of truth. That's a problem, isn't it? So when your church goes rogue, but your church is comfortable, but your church is what you're used to, so you support your church at the expense of truth, that's a problem, isn't it? When we begin to judge people, not on the merit of their love for the Lord and their obedience to the truths of God's word, but rather on the basis of their associations or their networks or their lack thereof. And in doing so, we do the church a great disservice. And we do our own spiritual lives a great disservice. Jesus said, if they are not against me, they are for me. If they are doing things the right way, what does it matter if they're not one of us? Now, two things about this that we need to make very clear. Because already I'm getting nervous as I hear me preach, right? First, we're not talking about error. We're not talking about error. We're not talking about being tolerant toward those that are teaching false doctrine, perverting the truths of Christ. Jesus was not saying, as long as they claim Jesus, they are for us, so let them be. That's not what he's saying. Jesus said, as long as they are for us, as long as their message is correct... He never tells us to allow false doctrine to continue without rebuke. And we see this throughout the New Testament, that we are called to rebuke 
false doctrine. Titus chapter 1 verses 10 through 13. For there are many unruly and vain talkers and deceivers, especially they are of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole houses, teaching things which they ought not for filthy lucre's sake, for money. One of themselves, even a prophet of their own, said the Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, slow bellies. This witness is true. Wherefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in faith. When you come across people that are walking contrary to sound doctrine, it is our duty and our privilege and our responsibility to rebuke it. 2 Timothy 3, 5. Excuse me, 1 through 5. Paul says, This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come, for men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof, But they're among us, so accept them, right? No. From such, turn away. 2 Timothy 4, verses 1 through 4. I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and Doctrine. Be patient, but stay true to the truth. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. We see in each of these passages the call to hold the line, to hold fast to sound doctrine. We are not to waver. When we're confronted with error, we are not to hold, we, we are to rather to hold fast to the faith once delivered. We are not to accept the men that Paul calls false brethren, that Peter calls false teachers among you, that Jesus called wolves in sheep's clothing. These men are to be identified, they're to be rebuked, and they're to be invited out of our fellowship. That's not what we're talking about here. But let us always take care that we are standing upon the ground of truth in our elements of separation. Truth. So first, we're careful to note that we are not, through this warning, excusing false doctrine in any way. But second, we also need to understand that it is okay to have differences. And through those differences, to associate with different groups. It is not a problem that we, as people, form different circles based upon cultural, traditional Differences. The problems come when we look at those different circles as a problem because they're different. When we see them as the enemy rather than partakers in the cause of Christ because they don't exactly do things our way. Examples of this can be manifold. We have a big one here. We are a non-age segregated church. Call us what you will. Uh, Ironically, we don't call ourselves family integrated because we don't want to associate with them and their doctrinal stances. Right? So we're just a big mess here, right? But... We're a non-age segregated church, but that doesn't mean we look out at age segregated churches and say, they're not of us, so we need to forbid them. We can't do that. It's not like that. It, that, that, that is not the spirit of Christ. I talked to a pastor just this past week. He loves the Lord. His, his church loves the Lord. They're doing right. They have a youth group. 
But you know what? Their families are dedicated to, to a family-oriented style of, of upbringing. Their, their children are not alienated from them, from, from their parents. You know, there's a church that is not in hundred segregated, but they're doing it right. That's okay. That's okay. We have our exclusivities. We have the things that we do, that we stand on, that we believe are right, that we like for one reason or another. And that's good. And so we've congregated into a group of people that agree with us on things. But behind each of the convictions that we hold, there are biblical reasons. But it is not our privilege to reject ministries on the basis of all of those differences. It is not our privilege to forbid them, and indeed, they too minister the gospel in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we might seek to do so, we might reflect more upon our own pride than about their ministry. In other words, when you start feeling these things, this us versus them, let that us versus them feeling in you first turn you inward to see if your heart is right. And then if your heart is right and your motive is pure, then you can turn it outward because it's probably where you need to rebuke some false teaching. Secondly, first, beware of the spirit of tribalism. Stay loyal to the truth. Secondly, beware of the spirit of judgment. Stay loyal to the gospel of peace. There are certain people upon this earth who, whether we like it or not, we have put on a mental impossible list, aren't there? People whose lives are filled with evil, from whom there is no end of hatred for us. People who slam the door in our face as we seek to share the gospel with them. People who speak evil of us for our obedience to Christ. People who not only want nothing to do with our message, but loudly and brazenly tell us so. People who mock us or blaspheme us or scorn us for our testimony. People who work after the spirit of this world to undercut all that is right and good in the Lord. And upon these people, we might wish to call down fire from heaven. Right? But beyond that, the people who are like this in the church, like what we've described, the people who see us and just because we are different, they scorn us. Or the people who would um, be walking contrary to sound doctrine and they're walking in rebellion and so they're scorning us. And so they're scorning the church of God. And so they are rejecting the things that are right and that are true. And while these feelings might be quite natural... Know above all else that they are not the Spirit of Christ. Consider the words of Jesus' brother, James, in James chapter 3, verses 13 to 18. Who is a wise man among you? Excuse me, who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? Let him show out a good conversation. I'm struggling reading a little bit here. Let him show out of a good conversation his works with meekness of wisdom. But if ye have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not and lie not against the truth. This wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. For where envying and strife is, there is confusion in every evil work. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, first pure, doctrinally pure. Then what? Peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness 
is sown in peace of them that make peace. What a beautiful description of the Spirit of Christ. I want to be this man. I want to be the man who is first pure, but then gentle, free from partiality and free from hypocrisy. I want the fruit of righteousness And this fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. This is the spirit of the gospel of Jesus Christ and this is the spirit of Christianity. And what of those people who are rejecting the gospel, who are walking in rebellion, who might even hate us, scorn us, be it believer or unbeliever? Do we just let them do it? What did Jesus do? They said, let's call down fire from heaven. He said, no. And then they went on to the next village. A couple of weeks ago, we read in Romans 12, which ends with this statement in verse 21. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. On Tuesday nights, we've been studying in 1 Peter for some time, and the words of Peter in this regard are very clear in nearly every chapter of the book. But he says this in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 13. Finally, brethren, finally be ye all of one mind, having compassion one of another. Love as brethren. Be pitiful. Be courteous. Not rendering evil for evil, or railing for railing, but, railing, but contrarywise blessing. Knowing that ye are thereunto called, that ye should inherit a blessing. For he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil, and his lips that they speak no guile. Let him eschew evil and do good. Let him seek peace and ensue it. For the eyes of the Lord are are over the righteous, and his ears are open unto their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. And who who is he that will harm you if ye be followers of that which is good? But, and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye. Be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Having a good conscience that whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. For it is better if the will of God be so, that ye suffer for well-doing than for evil doing. Can we not live with that spirit? Rather than desiring vengeance upon our enemies, which God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Can we not live with a spirit of pity? Courtesy? Meekness? Compassion? Forgiveness? Patience? Long-suffering? Deliberately so? Because you know what? Wasn't Christ that way with us? Isn't Christ that way with us? Is His grace not abounding to the chiefest of sinners? Is He not long-suffering and patient so that the man who spends 70 years of his life shaking his fist at God can, in a moment of time, be made a child of God before his death? If Christ is so long-suffering with us, can we not be the same toward others? Can we not be peaceable and gentle? 
Can we not pity the one who has rejected Christ rather than hate them? Can we not be renewed in our zeal to live and tell and reach rather than renewed in our zeal to confer upon them either in mind or in spirit destruction? That day of destruction, that day of judgment, the day of reckoning will come just as fast, by the way, for you as for them. Can we not, while grace pervades in this time of grace, while we are on this earth and our time is short and the Lord Jesus Christ is showing long-suffering upon them who have rejected Him, can we not do the same? Can we not leave God's business to Him and we be about the work that He has called us to be? First pure, then peaceable. But what about the gospel of peace? The spirit of Christianity is not a spirit of tribalism, of loyalty to groups and sects and denomination. It is not one of angry judgment. Ours is a creed to our Savior and the creed of our Savior who came not to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who came not to destroy men's lives, but to save men's lives. And so my question is, how are you doing? There is something so validating when you imagine sinners burning in a hot hell, isn't there? There's something so validating when you see bad things happen to bad people. There's something so validating when you see wayward people be judged for their waywardness. There's something very validating about that. But can we just lay it out there and recognize that that's not the Spirit of Christ? Can we just lay it out there and recognize that that's not the Spirit with which He has called us? Is that day coming? Yes. And if you know what's good for you, and if you know what's good for anybody that is wayward of Christ, then you know that that day is a day of fear and trembling that no one should be looking forward to. And you should not desire the hastening of that, of of the judgment of the Lord upon anyone else any more than yourself. That day will come. Christ will vindicate his righteousness. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, but then Gentle, peaceable, and easy to be entreated. Have you been caught up in one of these things? Maybe it's tribalism, an us versus them mentality. Maybe it's judgmentalism. A Lord, call down fire from heaven upon them who are not doing. Maintain purity. Don't, 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 Don't compromise the truth. But then beyond that, let's be careful that we are not artificially collecting ourselves in such a way that we are casting a negative light on those who are serving Christ just as we. Just as we would not want them to cast a negative light on we who are serving Christ just as they. May God help us to reflect the Spirit of Christ sowing the fruit of righteousness in peace of them that make peace. Let's pray.